welcome to another episode of the Resident Advisor Exchange. This week we're talking to Tom Holkenberg, who's better known as Junkie XL. He's probably one of the most in-demand film composers working today, scoring everything from Hollywood films like Mad Max Fury Road and Deadpool to video game franchises like FIFA and The Sims. But the Dutchman's roots lie in the electronic music of the 90s. It's easy to forget, given his success recently, that he toured as Junkie XL for over 20 years. So this conversation happened some time ago with RRA's Andrew Rice. And since then, Hulkenberg has sent us a little extra introduction to clarify the distance in time between when this interview was conducted and the current situation. You might have also seen his YouTube channel, which is remarkable for being a very complete documentation of how he works on his scoring projects. It's pretty rare for people doing this work to be so open with documenting their process and making it free for all to see. With all that being said, here comes the podcast with Junkie XL. Hey guys, this podcast was uh, recorded um, six months ago or so, if uh, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, the world was such a different place at that point. Um, there was no coronavirus, we could still go out, we had all these amazing parties and the work was like in full swing. And uh, also in my world, everything has turned like completely upside down, uh, like everybody else's. And we're just staying at home and uh, we can't go out. We can't have parties. As you guys know, I started in the dance scene many, many years ago. That's where I found myself as an artist. And I also laid the roots there as a, as a, as a composer in that same dance scene. And this has been a world that is so important to me uh, for 30 plus years now. So it's heartbreaking to see that it's not functioning and not operating in that same classic way. It's also very heartening to see that there's so many online DJ gigs and online uh, playlists that people are sharing. Uh, So there's a lot of good stuff happening as well. When I became a composer, the knowledge that I that I gathered from being an electronic musician, um, it's been so important in the rest of my career. So the foundation of uh, what I am as a composer today really was created in the electronic scene. And it's a really magical place and it's vital for it to continue. And I really admire the efforts of Resident Advisor, uh, Safer Scene, you know, to continue pushing that. Um, And it's very motivating and very uh, heartwarming to see that. And I know there's a lot of people out there that are really struggling and um, they're trying uh, to survive. And I wish you all the best of luck. And I hope that music will be uh, a very important factor in driving the weeks, months forward to really amazing creativity. So stay safe and take care. And again, thanks to Resident Advisor for all the efforts trying to save our scene. Hope you're well, take care.
so I just want to start with, how did you get into to film scoring to begin with? I mean, I've always been like a touring artist. Uh, first, I was playing in bands, and then I started my Junkie XL career and toured for many, many years as an electronic musician. And so somewhere in the, um, in the half 90s, I saw a film that was using one of my tracks in, in the film. And it was uh, The Blade with Wesley Snipes. And uh, I was like, man, it's so incredible how my music works to picture and I, I never dreamed it would be something like that. And so I got really interested in, um, in film because of that. And step by step, I got more and more involved in, in, in making films. I did a, a few bits here, a few bits there. Then I worked a little bit on Resident Evil. And then I worked a little bit on the Matrix movies, even though that never got used. It got used in the video game and, and uh, some promotional stuff. I did a track uh, that was called uh, Blue Pill, Red Pill in, uh, in 2000. So that was a big club track that was you know from, from the Matrix. And eventually I decided in 2002 to move to LA and just really fully pursue uh, film scoring. Uh, fast forward to 2012, where I finally then did my first film here in Hollywood, uh, 300 Rise of an Empire. Uh, so it took me 10 years from you know, coming here as an electronic musician, not knowing much about film scoring at all, and then eventually doing my first film. How did you find your way into the film industry here? After uh, it's it's pretty tough. It's it's also the, the the there's a lot of people here in town that obviously want to get into the industry, and it's a very tough nut uh, to crack. Uh, music eventually has not all that much to do with it. I would almost say, which is obviously not true because you know it is a music profession. But there's so many other things that are potentially even more important, and it's um, the way that you're able to manage time, the, the way that you can manage expectations with uh, studios, um, that you can manage a team, uh, because nowadays it's impossible to do a movie on your own. You need assistance to do it with. It's just too much work. So for a studio to say to you, oh, Tom, here is a $200 million movie. Why don't you make some music for that? They want to have like a security policy in place, if you will. And the security policy is that you've done it before, and that's what we... You know, you you talk about the, the who was first the chicken or the egg, um, because you know you need experience. But how do you get experience if you don't get the first job to get experience? So it's a really tough scenario, and you just need to have a little bit of luck, and, and you need to work really hard. You need to constantly network with people uh, here in town and show up for the right meetings and just try to work your way in. And it's definitely tough. What really helped me, obviously, was that I was assisting Hans Zimmer at a certain point in 2010 and 11, uh, where I got to meet a lot of people uh, from studios, directors, and producers, and to expand my network. Um, and eventually that led to doing my own film. How did you get involved with Hans Zimmer? Actually, we knew each other way longer. In 2004 or five, he called me and he said, uh, everybody tells me I should meet you, but I have no idea who you are. And so <laughs> I, I went to his studio and we played some music that I did and he was really blown away by, by it. And um, from that point on, we kept seeing each other regularly uh, for like once every year, once every half a year, uh, until in 2010, we started working together. What did you learn from working with him? 
so what I primarily learned from him were some of the political aspects, you know, just like um, uh, how to deal with uh, studios, how the politics works with studios versus directors versus uh, producers, uh, who are the more important people you should actually listen to, uh, learning how to read messages in a message so sometimes what people are telling you is actually not what they're trying to say uh, so these are very important parts uh, in that and the most important lesson I learned from him was when I then finally scored my own movie was uh, he basically slapped me on the back and he said you're going to be great at this and and so <clears throat> that seal of approval that seal of like oh you can you can do this and you're going to be great at it that uh, your first experience of scoring a movie by by yourself or like your first time doing your own score uh, was it a tough process? Oh, well, it was very daunting because it was only four weeks. Uh, so uh, it, the, it, this was a scenario where um, a composer got replaced, um, and I was then eventually hired uh, to do the to do the film. But there was only four weeks left. So not only was it my first film, but it also needed to be done in four weeks. So it was a very powerful first experience where. Uh, I learned like uh, so much, and I had to. I had to just do it in four weeks, and I've done that same thing a couple of times where I would replace another composer, and there were only three, four weeks left uh, to do the score. And it's uh, it's certainly not ideal, but boy, does your adrenaline just go from zero to ten, and and you're just like running four weeks straight, and then after that, you're like, oh, what happened over the last month? <laughs> Um, how did you transition from being like a club artist making electronic music to making like uh, composing music for films? Like, did you have to change the way you approached writing music, or how, how did you like? How did you go from doing one to the other? Um, I would say there's there's certain elements in film music that do not necessarily exist in the same form in, in electronic music, but um, nevertheless, there's a lot of things that are the same. I try to look at the music that I did for dance releases for my own albums and my remixes, and I came up with the list as like what. Is is connecting all these um, all these tracks together. The very important part that obviously there's always rhythm involved. Uh, the second thing is that I always had um, emotional undertones in, in in my music. At the same time, it was also. Uh, in the time that I was producing records, they were definitely one of the more aggressive ones uh, in uh, dance music out there, uh, in energy and also in production. Uh, my dance music almost had like uh, a rock and roll production, even though it was electronic music. Um, then at the same time, my music was very multi-layered. Uh, I was never able to make a track like uh, as simple as uh, Daft Punk, Da Funk. You know, I, I was a little jealous of that because these guys took a kick drum, a snare drum, and then one synth riff, and boom, the track is done. So my music was always multi-layered with things coming out and things coming in. So these were things that I definitely took into, uh, into film scoring. Now, the thing in film scoring that's very normal that you have within one piece of music, all kinds of tempo changes and melodic changes and harmonic changes, that you wouldn't do so, so uh, easily in a dance track because you take away that aspect of it that is important, which is dancing. Um, so, and for dancing, the tempo needs to be somewhat continuous. You can go halftime. There was a time period where we go from four on the floor and then we go to something like dubstep for like a minute and then back to four on the floor. That all works, but all kinds of different tempo changes within within a song is not really uh, successful for a dance track. And then obviously the extensive use of the orchestra, which is uh, something that is tried in dance music, but has not been successfully tried in dance music. Maybe that's something to look at in the future, but uh, not for now. <laughs> 
Um, you do use an orchestra in a lot of your scores, um, and you mix it with electronic elements. Why is it important to you to keep like using a real orchestra? For a couple of reasons. The, one of the beautiful things working on film scores is that there are budgets to do this, um, and it does make the final result better. It's very simple. You know, an average orchestra is 200 people big. Uh, all of them have um, 10,000 hours of, uh, of experience. Uh, so you're talking 2 million hours of experience on the highest level possible in playing that instrument. So if you add that to something that you've done, it's just fantastic. And it's, it, uh, it really adds magic to it. It's the, um, the imperfection of, of live players that makes it so great. You know, you can you can program rock and roll completely with a computer if you wanted to, but it would take the soul out of it. And and so, very similar with uh, classical music and with orchestral music, it's yeah, you can program it and it sounds pretty good. Um, but to do it with uh, live musicians is is the next level of uh, of, of uh, greatness. Besides that, the orchestra is uh, one of those. Um, proven methods over the last hundred years of, of uh, filmmaking that will stand the test of time. And uh, you need to use it in a proper way. And if I use uh, electronic elements, I tend not to, to use the electronic uh, sounds that are hip today, because what is hip today is unhip uh, tomorrow. And a movie takes up to four years to make. Uh, so by the time you start creating the hip sounds of today, by the time the movie comes out, it feels like old news. So when it comes to electronic elements, I try to use stuff also that has been proven itself uh, uh, timeless uh, at this point. So I take references from the 70s. Um, when it comes to the, the MOOC synthesizer era, I take references from the 80s that have now been uh, rehashed uh, for almost uh, 40 years, and people don't seem to get tired of it. And if you if you quote the 80s in the right way, uh, it also feels timeless. And there are elements in the 90s and the 2000s as well where uh, you could really use a proper sound or a proper approach to a piece of music that will not feel dated. Um, for instance, if you um, if we if we compare two 80s scores uh, from the 80s, one is Beverly Hills Cop uh, by uh, Harold Faltermeyer, and uh, one is uh, the original Blade Runner with uh, with uh, Vangelis. So, in my humble opinion. Um, the Beverly Hills Cop uh, soundtrack feels now very dated and, and very fun to listen to. And in the time when it came out, it was definitely revolutionary and it was really great to listen to a full synthesizer uh, approach to uh, to music. In that same category for me is uh, Miami Vice, the, t the TV shows with uh, John Hammer. Also incredible uh, music, but if you play it back right now, it feels very, uh, very dated and that typical era. And what's interesting with the Vangelis score of Blade Runner, for me, that stayed timeless. And uh, there are a couple of bits in the in the score, the saxophone solos, uh, that I can do without. But in general, the whole soundtrack feels very, uh, very contemporary still. Uh, and in that same note, also uh, the Brad Fidel score of uh, the two Terminators, they they still feel very relevant uh, at this point. So. That's what you need to look at when you use electronic elements into your score or orchestral elements. And uh, when you're incorporating these 
electronic elements are using like hardware or software or like especially if you're using like in like an old synth sound you have the actual uh, old synth at your studio or well um as most people uh know that spent uh, some time on the internet and look for uh, uh synth collections and stuff that um i i've no i've been known to have uh, to be uh, a hoarder a synthesizer hoarder and i've been so since uh, the early 80s where when i worked in a music store and started collecting all these uh, uh synths that were traded in for little or no money and uh, I bought them all in that time period and I kept them all and I kept them really up to, up to date and they're wonderful instruments. Um, but when people uh, listen to some of the sounds that I use and they say, oh, you can, you can, you can clearly hear this is like an analog synth and, and most of the time they're wrong. Um, most of the people that think sounds are uh, analog, they're actually digital, uh, whether it's derived by the Eurorack uh, cabinet um, with all its digital modules um, or plugins in, uh, in, uh, on the computer in uh, Cubase. But I also use analog synthesizers, but they sound uh, so harsh and aggressive that people are swearing that that is a digital plugin from the box. And that is actually a real analog synth. So there's no right or wrong there. It, it really comes down to uh, what quality you're really looking for. Um, the film that I just finished, uh, Terminator, is full of uh, synth sounds and they come from everywhere. They come from hardware, they come from software. Uh, sometimes these are jam sessions that I do on my own with the modular synth and then uh, long live the assistants. Uh, one assistant will take those hours and hours long uh, recordings and chop them up in, into different individual files and creates like a library for it. Um, and I can just grab things from it that I need when I'm, when I'm writing a piece of music. So hardware is absolutely fantastic. Software is absolutely fantastic. There's no right and wrong there. It just totally depends on what you're looking for. Uh, and so Terminator is the most recent or current thing you've done that's yeah. coming out in November. November first, yeah. Um, so would you say this is like your most prominent movie yet? Do you think movie score yet? Or for me? Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that's what other people suppo are supposed to uh, uh, <laughs> uh, say something about, not, not the composer himself. Uh, the, the way that I look at my music, I've always done that, is that when I'm done with it, I'm extremely happy with it. Uh, and it is, at that point, the best that I have in me. But you're not always as strong, you're not always as... Uh, inspirational uh, to, to get the right things out. So there's um, always when I look back on all the things that I've done, I can now see like, oh, I should have done that over there. And I try to listen to the earlier things that I've done and learn from it and just take it into, into my next uh, project. So when I was done with Terminator, I thought it was the best that I had in me at that specific point in time. But my film scores uh, also vary in, uh, in, uh, in character and quality. So the electronic music uh, people and the modern film score uh, enthusiasts will absolutely love this score. The people that are fans of John Williams, they will hate this score because it's all controlled noise. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a massive homage to the original two scores by Brett Fidel with uh, James Cameron. And also this is the third uh, James Cameron installment as a, as a producer and Tim Miller directed the movie that I did uh, the first Deadpool with. Um, so it's really like movie one, two, and three, and that's it. And so uh, the the music um, 
it, it was important for me that there was a lot of echoes uh, from the first two Terminator movies in this movie. What what are they? What, what did you bring from the first two movies? Music. Well, there's the there's the iconic theme, and there's like certain sounds and sounds approach, and and so I know how Brett Fidel made his sounds. He was a very creative. Uh, uh, a sampler enthusiast, and uh, and I have all those old bo- old boxes that he worked with uh, as well. So we did a lot of sampling on our own, and uh, did that with these samplers. And you get the low degrading quality that comes with it. And then you know, there's a lot of other musical instruments added to the score because this movie is uh, taking place primarily in Mexico. So we're in a completely different part of of the world. Uh, so you need to reflect that also. So in the, in the music, um, how did you reflect the film taking place in Mexico in the music? I, I'm not allowed to say too much about it at this point because people need to see it. But uh, I found this really interesting mix uh, between uh, organic instruments that really underscore that we that we are in Mexico and that we're dealing with real people and real lives and real feelings and real emotions, and at the same time we have these robots that are sent from the from the future they have no emotions and they are on one mission and one mission only uh so very mechanical uh and so it was very interesting to look for a mix between between all these things um you you said the soundtrack was mostly controlled noise what do you mean by that um, controlled noise is uh, for me also what Mad Max is uh, and, and some of the other scores that I've done. It's um, basically creating uh, sounds with real instruments that if that were to happen in this room next to your head, uh, you would really like try to cover your ears because it, it's, it's uncomfortable to, to listen to. And I like making sounds that make people uncomfortable. And uh, especially doing that to a movie that's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable on the edge of the seat. Bring it on. That's when I'm completely in my element. So you said like, you know, in electronic music, including something like an orchestra, has not really been done that well yet. Uh, And you're someone who is really good at combining electronic and the acoustic for lack of whatever it sounds is is there like a key to it or like a secret or like how, how do you combine them the two things so well what i what i actually said or what i actually meant was there's been beautiful music being made of electronic music and orchestra combined i was talking about dance music or i meant dance music so when you combine an orchestra with electronic music and you create a dance uh, party as insane as uh, Chesto or Afro, Afrojack or, or um, Calvin Harris or, you know, and any of those, uh, Steve Aoki, um, uh, Garnix, uh, all those um, legends at this, at this point. And that I haven't seen done uh, successfully yet. It's different if you were to organize something like uh, Armin van Buren in concert or something and do it with an uh, orchestra, but that's not what I mean. I mean um, something that is like uh, built up from the ground and that is what the sound of that act is. And that becomes then popular and big. And, uh, you know, as especially in the 90s, uh, we had uh, a lot of these... Uh, interesting bands that all ended up in the bracket of dance music but what they were actually doing was pretty interesting uh you know chemical brothers uh underworld prodigy orbital uh, these were actually more bands than they were a dj uh spinning and they all had a very unique sound 
Um, and they became very popular with it. And that's actually what I'm talking about, that somebody embraces the orchestra what it is um, with all its downsides and all its upsides and really uses that effectively uh, to create a dance act that really lives on the merits of these elements combined together instead of, <clears throat> you know what I mean, with in concert, yeah. right? So you, they're technically all electronic hits by Armin van Buren, but now you play them live with, uh, with an orchestra. And yeah, people will enjoy that, but it's not really what I'm, uh, what I'm talking about. I would almost say people would enjoy it despite of, yeah. you know, because it's, um, yeah, it's the songs they want to hear, but now they're played by, uh, by an orchestra. Um, do you think that you're your career and experience in dance music informs the way you compose music for film, like dance music specifically? Absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, all the good DJs, they know how to create a very interesting arc over two, three hours. It's not necessarily the, the, the type of DJ sets that you would hear now on the main stage where it's all like, Everything is at 10 constantly and then they play each, they play for an hour and they play like big hits and, and I, I get all that. That's just the, the fun factor of playing in front of 100,000 people, 200,000 people. And I've been there before too. I'm talking more about the, about the DJs and they're playing mostly in smaller clubs that are still making this really interesting build over like three hours and take the audience to like a peak uh, and then, you know, it's up to the, up to the next person. And I see that more or less as an arc of a film, you know, uh, a film starts somewhere and it, musically it starts somewhere. You have all these different uh, personalities, um, antagonists in this, in this film, and they all have their own stories. They have their relationships with one another. And to underscore that musically and then also create a narrative of like two and a half hours where you take your audience musically to that peak where the movie then is going to go. That is very much similar to uh, to what dance music is. When you started working on scoring your own films and working on creating this arc, did you find that it came naturally to you, or was it like? Yes, a, I yeah. did. And and there's a couple of other things that came naturally. Um, some of the aspects I mentioned earlier: uh, managing people, managing expectations, um, be a good listener, working in a team environment because that's what a, a film, working in films is. You work in a team environment, and at the same time, really understanding what happens uh, in the picture, what needs to happen musically. Uh, I thought it would be very hard for me, but it all just came very naturally. And, uh, and it's also a profession that you're never too old to learn. And that's also uh, something that's very appealing to me, that you, know, you constantly work with different people uh, with a different uh, outlook on what a film needs to be and what it potentially musically needs to be. And it's never the same. Each, each movie is like, uh, like different. And it's uh, very different, actually. And so I actually really like uh, this uh, environment. I can now see in retrospect... I can say in retrospect, I should actually never been an artist. I should always been should have been a film composer. But I would not be the film composer today if I didn't have that amazing past of being an artist and playing in front of so many incredible crowds all over the world. I mean, just I mean, it just puts a smile on my face when I think back about that whole. 15 year 20 years of uh, of uh, more than 20 years of of touring as as junkie excel and seeing all the outposts in the world from small clubs to really big stages so i would not be the same person today and also not the same film composer do you ever miss it Yes, I do. I mean, every now and then. Well, what's what's funny also is that the eighty percent of my touring 
happens before the YouTube and Facebook days. So there's not a whole lot of footage uh, online of me performing live. There's a good amount, but not not like if I were to start in 2006 and still playing now, then you would have so much more. And every now and then uh, when I talk to my assistants, it's like, oh, uh, grandpa, why don't you uh, show us how things were back in the day? And then, you know, I just, I mean, I'm, I'm turning 52 this year and, uh, you know, the average age of my assistant is between like 22 and, and 27. Uh, so they, are, they could all virtually be my kids. So I sometimes Google like things like the Ultra Fest Miami or uh, some shows I did in Europe, uh, Fuji Rock in Japan or... Uh, Coachella in 2005 and and so yeah it's really great to see it again and then it's like oh man I miss that but I mean it you know it was that time period and it was really really great and now uh, I'm just really happy to to work in the studio environment and and just really work on this what I really really love to do so I'm uh, I'm pretty happy and you can make music without having to tour all the time to make money well, the thing is that with, um, I would say to a certain extent, the, the pressure is, uh, on one hand, the pressure is higher on the artist's career because every track that you release, uh, you know, needs to be the, the, the thing that's going to propel you uh, further into your career, is going to propel you further into getting live gigs and, and, and festivals and such. With film scoring, once you're in the circle of scoring films, um, the only thing you really need to worry about is to make sure that your relationships with all the people that you work with stay intact and you keep delivering the best that you can. But uh, it's not like um, a public tribunal as it is as an, as an artist that if you do a film score to a movie, the only person that needs to be ultimately happy with what I did is the director. So if... Um, if there are people out there in the world that say, oh, it's a terrible film score and I would, I would never have done that. I would have hired John Williams or what I would, you know, that there's always these discussions there and vice versa. When, when orchestral guys do a movie and they say, oh, they should have gotten Tom or they should have gotten that person. But that doesn't have any impact on, on the relationship that you have with the director because the composer and the director set out the musical course for that movie and whatever the people think out there doesn't really matter all that much. Uh, and that is quite different in the artist world because the people out there are the ones that are listening to you on Spotify that buy potentially your CD, whoever still buys a CD, or your vinyl records, or then determines to come and see you play live when you when you go on tour. So I would say on that end, it's more intense on the, on the artist world. But in the film world, the work pressure is like from a whole different level than it ever was as an artist. I thought touring and making music for for a living was uh, pretty tough and, and exhausting at times. But boy, if you enter the films, that, that's just like kindergarten compared to uh, film scoring. The hours that you need to put in. Uh, it's really running a marathon after marathon after marathon, where for me, the artist world felt more like a 500-meter sprint, and then you take a break of two weeks, and then you do another one. When you're working on a film, what is your relationship like with the director, like your working relationship? How involved are they with the music? It's very Yeah, the, the relationship, let's put it this way, this, this has something to do with uh, how people are, obviously, and so... Hey, you talk to two persons on the left that have a relationship and two people on the right that have a relationship. And the two people on the right are, 
you know, they spend minimum time on each other and they're happy with, with what that is and they continue to live like that for the rest of their lives. And the other two people constantly are in dialogue with each other to improve each other and to improve their relationship and just to make sure that they continuously stay in sync for years and years to come. So the same with composer and, uh, and a director. Uh, so sometimes you work with the director that gives you very little information and is not necessarily... Uh, engaged all the time with you and then there's other directors and those usually are the ones that are the very strong directors like George Miller, uh, Robert Rodriguez, uh, James Cameron, Tim Miller, Peter Jackson. Those are the ones that I've worked with um, that are very engaging directors. They want to talk for hours about characters and about this and that and then when I start making music they love to play it for three, four times in a row and then discuss it really thoroughly with you, what they feel and what they think it's doing to them. I would say, on average, I have a very close and intense relationship with the, with the director when it comes to the musical course of a film. Have you ever had a director be like, this is shit, or like start over, or like really not like something you've done? So that happens, but it's not... It's not worded like that because it's, they don't mean it like that. So there's never a question that the piece of music I sent is a great piece of music to their ears. The discussion is whether it's right for the moment in the film. So let's say uh, we're talking about um, you know uh, Superman, for instance, and he's about to discover something about himself and we play the music too heroic, and the director would say, you, you have to do this again because he's discovering something about himself. He's not the hero yet, so you gotta wait a little. Or with um, Mad Max, uh, I would write the theme for Furiosa, the, the, the main character played by Charlize Theron, and when she, when she finally finds out, or she's about to find out that there is no green space where, where she wants to go with the truck, um, and the, the first initial take on that was that I was too sad immediately. And George said, but wait, she hasn't even found out yet that the place does not exist. You got you to grow into that. So these are the type of comments that you would get from a director, not like your music is shit and, and uh, you need to do it again. Or it's, it's not like that. It's always in relationship to where we are in the film and if that scene deserves that type of approach uh, at that point. Um, and you do a lot of like big Hollywood movies that involve like, like you said, like heroic themes or like, you know, the Terminator, like action movies. How did you learn how to make music that evokes these moods? Because it, it seems very different, like composing something for like that Superman scene you're talking about than making like a, a dance track. So I was never considered a trans artist, even though I was loved by the trans audience. And I would share the stage with... Uh, Chiesto and with Ferry Corsten and with Paul Van Dyke and Paul Oakenfold, uh, even though I was not trans uh, per sang, I was um, I was very alternative in my sound, um, but I had really big melodies and big harmonies. And I think the music that I made as an artist uh, in the life setting made people feel very inclusive. It's like, oh, this is about me, or this is, I belong here, and I want to be part of this. And and that's not all that different from scoring in a heroic theme, uh, because 
when you write an heroic theme for Furiosa or for Deadpool or for uh, Superman or for uh, what, whatever character, Laura Craft in, in Tomb Raider, uh, and now Terminator, is, it's, it needs to have that big quality that people feel like, oh, I'm part of this. I want, I want to be part of this. And this guy is a hero and I want to be part of that uh, Superman story or, or feeling. I, I think it's pretty close in, in, in idea what you're, what you're trying to achieve. I've seen you describe or describe yourself as the as this phrase the full contact composer. I was wondering if you could explain what that means. Yeah, so um, I've never considered myself even in the in the um, even when I was making electronic dance music, and a lot of my colleagues were, and I don't mean this as a negative uh, thing at all, but a lot of my colleagues were just sitting behind a laptop with a headset and just like you know just like typing in stuff, and then the music would appear uh, from that, and. Um, I was never really that guy. I need to turn knobs, I need to bang on drums, I need to bang on pianos or play guitar or bass guitar or um, uh, play around with my modular synth system and just like make noises and chop them up later or making great guitar noises with amps and, and experimental sounds. Uh, and that's what I mean with full contact. I need, I need something in my hands uh, to make music with or noise with uh, to really get uh, inspired. And I even did that when I did my dance tracks. There was um, so many sounds in there which derived from weird recordings and, and just doing stuff uh, myself. The benefit of that is that you also create sounds that are 100% uh, yours and the odds that somebody else would make that same sound somewhere in the world is, uh, is not all that big. And so... If you were to talk about like certain synthesizers that are popular in the dance music world, like uh, in the past Massive was and, and, and Serum is right now, um, you might run into the, the issue that you make a track with either one of the great presets that these synths come with and five or six dance tracks come out within the same month that actually use the same sounds. And uh, I never wanted to be that guy. So it's like, oh, I've heard that sound in, in another dance track. So that's why it was very important to me to create your own sounds and to be part of that. You have to actually do it physically. And, and so that's where the full contact comes from. Um, I know that sometimes you use recordings of things that aren't just like a, a modular or instruments. And I was wondering if you could talk about maybe a few examples of times when you've recorded something that wasn't like a, an actual instrument to use in the score. Yeah, well, I love... Um, um, so one of the things that I, I love doing is uh, uh, scan YouTube for really odd sounds. Uh, and it could be, uh, I don't know, like a street musician that is playing in, in a subway in New York. Uh, it could be some awkward, weird documentary about the Amazon and they're walking through the jungle and you hear all these weird uh, bird sounds and the leaves just like being cut away by somebody with a sword. And I would take recordings of that and then do sound design of them and create something uh, unique. Uh, I love making my own instruments and start experimenting with those. Uh, I have a thing that's called the Piano from Hell, uh, which I made, and I use guitar pickups and and sticks and and hammers to play to play that thing. I've done a lot of city recordings uh, of um, buses and trams and trolleys. Uh, for instance, for the movie I did with Peter Jackson, Mortal Engines, one of the main characters, Shrike. Um, he has a theme that is a sample from a garbage truck that drives away. 
And uh, so I was sitting at the dentist uh, waiting for uh, my appointment and I heard this garbage truck uh, take off. And I was like, man, that's awesome. And it, because I sat in the room and the whole room started shaking because of the low end coming from the garbage truck. And then I had one of my poor assistants look for two days through uh, garbage truck uh, recordings to find me a recording that did exactly the same thing that I wanted it to do. Um, and we did find it. Uh, so uh, those things I find very, very enjoyable. And that's to come back what I said earlier when you asked, what is controlled noise? Well, this is exactly what that is. You said, obviously, you have assistants that help you in these projects. Um, when you have a movie like The Terminator, how big is the team you're working with? It depends. I mean, usually it's like a, two people, uh, um, and usually that's fine. Um, the thing, though, is with uh, modern movies that are very expensive, you know, we're, we're talking about movies that are two, three hundred million or more uh, to make, um, which means that at the very end of the process, everybody gets nervous. Do we make our money back? Uh, so that is one. Two, the technical development uh, of where music is today, but also the technical development where, uh, where it comes to visual effect shots, uh, the CGI, uh, but also the picture editing has gotten to a point where you can keep everything free-floating and open till the very, very latest moment that you have to say, okay, this is it. And now that we're talking about digital releases pretty much all over the world, it means that a theater, three days before the movie starts playing, they can download the movie from a server. Uh, it comes with the security code, and they have to type in the security code on the day off. And then three, four hours before the screening, they can test this, every, everything is okay, and then they play it. So as long as you deliver that, 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 that digital downloadable file to the theaters like three, four days before the premiere, that's when you have a, a movie coming out. Now let's go back 30, 40 years in time where um, all the movies were still film. Uh, so the film needed to be completely glued together and edited. Uh, months and uh, months before the release because it needed to get copied like in, in I don't know, like 30, 40,000 films needed to be copied and sent all over the world so theaters could play it. Um, so quite a different production process than where we are today. And so that means that um, at the very end of the production process of that movie, things can get really crazy with um, requests from the director or requests from the studio uh, to try changes here and there. And that influences the music as well. So sometimes you need to go very wide at the last, we're talking the last 10, 14 days of a film. Sometimes you need to work with six people on it or seven or eight just to get it done. Um, and when you're working on these movies, your movies tend to be like big Hollywood movies. Um, do you feel like it's still artistically satisfying to you? For me, it is. Also because um, directors and studios give me usually uh, a lot of freedom to come up with a musical concept that, uh, that I think is right for the film. And then we discuss it, obviously, with the studio and the director and, and, and the producers. And then uh, we come to some sort of an understanding what it, what it needs to be. And it's so refreshing to, uh, to be able to do that. And, you know, to, to, to name like two examples, uh, one is uh, Mad Max and the other one is Deadpool. It's just really great when, you, when I saw Deadpool for the first time to say, like, I think we need to come up with 
a sort of 80s music score on acid, you know, for, for him. And uh, so it's so cool that the director in the studio was like totally on board with that because when you see that film, it's just like, but why would you guys stick 80 music against it? And but it works. It works so remarkably well. And the same with Mad Max. It's it's uh, it's a dystopian film in it, not in the far future, but a dystopian film. And to come up with that sound uh, for that, it, it's just like super great. And that you have the freedom from the director and the studio to freely experiment in that in that in that world until you feel that you're ready and then you present the whole concept and then you take it from there. Do you still make music for fun, for lack of a better term? Yeah, so especially um, there's a couple of instruments. I started playing uh, the string instruments really intensely like a year ago. Uh, so I have a violin at home um, that I play and, and practice in the early morning hours and that's just just me and the instruments just like nicely playing. I have the same relationship with my drum kit that is over there and with my uh, Spanish guitar. It's just like me playing at night or early in the morning and it's just me and the instruments just nicely playing. And then the other set of instruments I have that with are the, the synthesizers. I just, so uh, in the other room I have over there, which is the, the, the synth room that is featured in most of my studio time uh, recordings, I just switch all the synths on and at night I'm just, I'm just playing. I'm not recording. It's just me and those instruments, just having fun on my own. And it's really good for the soul. And you mentioned studio time, which um, can you explain what that is? Yeah, so this is for me... Um, there's a, there's a couple of things in that in that same vein is that I, I I was brought up in a family where music was always very important and my mom was a music teacher and during the day she made her money uh, giving music lessons on schools and such and at night she would give um, private lessons to kids usually from less fortunate families uh, for no money or or very little money uh, to make sure that these kids also got. Uh, education so that's how I grew up and so education has always been an important part in my uh, in my life I also have had um, really great music teachers myself that uh, also functioned as mentors to me like how to look at life and how to uh, achieve certain things so in 2003, I was asked by Artes, which is the biggest music conservatorium uh, university in Holland, to set up a four-year study course there, uh, which is called Music and Media. And I was attached to that university for 10, 12 years or so. And then I quit that and I was like, okay, now what? Uh, and so that's when the idea got born for Studio Time. Uh, very in-depth uh, tutorials about how I work, about my gear, um, about how to score a film, how to write for strings, how to do this, how to do that. So very, very detailed uh, documentation of the process of being a film composer. Um, and we're now about to record season four. Uh, so we're super excited uh, about that whole process. It's definitely expensive to do. We do it without sponsors and it's really like labor of love and it's, it's, a, it's a way of giving back to the community. And the second extension to that is that I now actually started a physical academy here uh, with two students and we did a test year last year and it was very successful and this year we went uh, official for the first time and we have Ching Chen from uh, Taiwan who got selected and uh, Daniel Grice from, uh, from Australia and so 
it was really like a submission uh, process, um, like it is on any university, um, a written motivation, uh, five tracks, uh, and uh, a couple of questions that you needed to answer. And I went through all these applications and boiled it down to like a top 10, and then, you know, who were my favorite two, and um, they're studying now here. And the beautiful thing is it's, it's for free. When you're giving people this uh, detailed documentation and all your methods, you don't feel like you're giving away secrets or anything? No, because um, I, I think it's important that um, people see how other people work in order to learn from it, or you see something that you like, or you see something that you dislike. And then in both scenarios, you, you want to pursue it, or you want to pursue the other direction, but then at least you've, you've seen it. And um, if you look at the... Um, the classic cultures, the, the Chinese culture, the, the Roman culture, and the Greek culture, like thousands of years ago, uh, sharing was a really big part of, of their culture, and that's how you can really thrive and, and, and grow. Uh, I feel that a lot of people holding too much stuff to, to themselves, unnecessary, I feel. You need to trust in your own um, uh, creative uh, process and in your creative uh, capacity to come up with new ideas every time. And so why would it be a problem then to share how you made Mad Max and how you shared Batman versus Superman and how you made uh, Tomb Raider and how you made Mortal Engines and how you made uh, Terminator? Why wouldn't you not share that if for the next movie you're gonna come up with a new plan? The only thing I cannot share is how I come up with that idea. <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I don't know how that process works. I watch a film and poof, I have like 15 ideas in my head. I, I cannot explain where they come from, but I do have them. And from that point on, I can share everything that I'm doing from that point on. Mm.